In just a few minutes, we will be in Philippians. If you want to take your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. I have a few things to say before that, uh, by way of introduction, before we get to that letter. I want to thank you for having me here again. Uh, as Brent said, you guys have asked me back. And it may, be, it may not be you guys. It may just be Brent that wants me to keep coming back around. Um, but I've always enjoyed being with this group of people. It's always been an encouragement. And every time I come, there's new faces and new people that I've not met. And I look forward to that. Uh, Eric said this is an awkward week for him uh, because he's coming and being around guys that influenced him and helped him. And Eric's right. As soon as I met Eric, when he first became a Christian, I knew that he was gifted. I knew that God could use him. And I kept telling him that he could use those gifts to help a lot of people. I'll tell you why this is awkward for me is every one of the guys that I'm around this week um, make me feel like I don't know much at all, including this young man who spoke just a few minutes ago. Uh, His understanding of scripture and his uh, breadth of reading of not just God's word, but other things. um, I'm just in awe of what God can do. And uh, I think Brent likes having me around because he knows that he's smarter than me. Um, (laughs) It makes him feel good about himself. So, I want you to think about for a minute um, somebody you might know who, despite difficult circumstances and life beating them up and kind of turning them upside down over the years, they have still radiantly influenced people for the Lord. They just keep doing what they do and accomplish things. And yet when you look at their life, you realize their circumstances don't exactly lend themselves to making that a comfortable thing for them to do. But can you think of somebody you know like that? What is it about those people that make them so strong? Uh, In a minute, we're going to look at some things that Paul wrote in the letter to the Philippians that I think illustrate this. But one of my favorite verses in the Bible comes in the middle of the book of Nehemiah. You don't have to go there. But I want you to think about Nehemiah and how influential he was to the people of Israel, uh, specifically Jerusalem. He was living in a different place under difficult circumstances, makes his way all the way back over to where the people of God are. And everything's in disrepair there. Uh, That congregation of people are stepping over the rubble of walls that have been down for decades. Nobody seems to care that much about what's going on with the work of the Lord. They're all concerned about sort of their own lives. And everything about God's city is just falling down. And yet this guy rides into town and gets everybody stirred up. And after just a few days... They get this wall built and they sort of put the the place back together. I don't know if you remember, after all that's done, Ezra shows up in chapter 8 of Nehemiah. and, And just listen to these words at the beginning of the chapter. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. All the people gathered as one man. Can you imagine that? Maybe we all understand this a little bit. For all that we've been through the last couple of years, isn't it just great when you finally get together with all of God's people 
and you see all the faces and you're all together. But what they did on that occasion is they actually asked for a preacher to preach. That doesn't always happen. Uh, But they said, we want to hear the book of the law. So Ezra gets up and he begins to read the book of the law and preach to them. And everybody starts crying. Remember that? Listen to what Nehemiah told them. Verse 9 of chapter 8 says, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught by people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. Now listen to these words. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I asked you a minute ago, think about the people that have been most influential in spite of their circumstances. Would you agree with me that what gave them their strength wasn't that they had all the health in the world or all the money in the world or all the situations in life propping them up to make them strong. What, what made them strong was this deep internal joy of belonging to God. Did you know that's what made Nehemiah strong? It's what made him look at a, a situation that seemed impossible. And instead of weeping about it, he did weep, but he didn't continue weeping. He found strength in joy, in the joy of the Lord specifically. Now, with that in mind, I want to draw your attention to Philippians. You know, I think this letter is well-loved by Christians, and it's a letter I go back to a lot when I'm feeling down or not like I'm not being productive, because it's it's a letter that was written to encourage Christians to rejoice in the Lord. Remember the rest of that? Always. Uh, even in 2020 or 2021 or whatever's coming next. I don't even want to know what's coming next, guys. But is it possible for Christians to live and rejoice in the Lord always? And because they have this joy in their life, there's a lot of good that can be done, even in the darkest of times. Uh, real quick overview of Philippians before we get to what I want to show you in the book. Uh Paul writes this letter, and I think he has our minds on his mind. That word mind comes up like seven times in the book. And he keeps telling the Philippians that they have to think or be minded or have certain attitudes, your version might translate it. That those that mindset, that attitude of a Christian is what really is going to make them successful. But it centers around the idea of the mindset of joy. Like 17 times in this short letter, he's going to use a word like joy or rejoice. So this idea of setting our minds on the joy that comes from having the good news, having God in our life, is what's going to help us do God's work. Uh, Here's how this breaks down. Chapter 1, if you look at verse 20, he says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, But that with all boldness, Christ will be, uh, even now as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. 
For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want you to notice Paul's attitude here. Paul's attitude is that no matter what's going on in his life, the only goal he has is that Christ is magnified. Christ is exalted. I like the versions that use the word magnified. When I was a kid, I used to pick up binoculars and you could hold those binoculars up and look at the stars or you could look at something. And those little tiny glasses, that tool, could make big things appear bigger. How anybody could magnify Christ as big as he is uh, only makes sense if you understand what Paul's saying here. We are the lens through which Christ can either be bigger or when I was a kid, you could flip those binoculars around the other way. Did you ever do that? And you try to walk around and everything seemed further away. But a lot of people don't magnify Christ. They demagnify. He looks smaller in people's eyes because of the way we handle ourselves. So here's what I would say about chapter one. Paul had a single mindedness about his life. That for him to live as Christ, to die as gain, that no matter what was going on, Christ would be exalted. Have you ever noticed how having a double mind robs you of your joy? When you're split in your allegiance, when you're trying to live in two places, when you're trying to pay attention to all the, I liked what you said, nonsense that's going on and forgetting about what matters most, it's hard to live a joyful life. But a single mindedness that Paul teaches in this first chapter helps us find joy. Chapter two, look at chapter two, verse five. Two, five, he says, have this mind or attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, if the first chapter taught single-mindedness, This second chapter in this text teaches selfless mindedness, being a servant kind of person. And Paul says, have this kind of mind. Now, let me attach that back to the theme of joy. Have you ever noticed that a lot of people think the way they're going to find joy in this life is to just be selfish? I mean, remember how many people went out and bought all the toilet paper for themselves thinking that that would make them happy. It didn't make them happy. Uh, it just kind of wiped out, no pun intended, like everybody else's joy. Like, there's this idea in our world that the way we're going to find real joy is to just be self-centered. But Jesus taught this incredibly different kind of way of life. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And here's what a lot of people have figured out is that genuine joy has to do with the mindset of selflessness. That the more you give and the more you think of others like Jesus taught us in this text, it helps you maintain your joy. Selfishness actually robs joy. Chapter three, look at chapter three, verse 20. When Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is in heaven. 
So if chapter one is about single-mindedness, chapter two is about being selflessly minded, chapter three here is about having a spiritual mind. We're citizens of heaven. Have you noticed that when people think of themselves as citizens of this world primarily, joy is always robbed? Just watch the news this week. Just worry about the next election. Just start thinking about the citizenship you have in this country and in this world. And the devil will keep taking the joy of the Lord away from you constantly. But you know what changes that is having a spiritual mind. Single, selfless, spiritual. Finally go to chapter 4. Look at verse 11. He said, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now, I would use the word satisfied here. Paul had learned this secret to strength. If you just go a few verses later to verse 13, when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The strength that God gave him was not only this joy, but a satisfaction, a contentment in life. People who are not satisfied in their life don't have joy. What you really have in this short letter is a handbook of how to not lose your joy. Number one, how to attain it, but then how to maintain it. In the mindsets that you have of being, uh, going back to chapter one, uh, being single-minded in your purpose, being service-oriented, in your thinking, being spiritually minded and being satisfied in your life. And I think the Philippians needed to hear that. Go back to chapter one. I'm going to show you now the bookends of the book and really give you the premise of my lesson. The title of this lesson is contentment equals furtherance. And what I mean by that is contentment in our circumstances actually is what furthers the gospel of Christ in the world where we live. But here's where this comes from. So chapter one, look at verse 12. Paul makes this interesting statement. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress, your version might say furtherance, of the gospel. Now just pause for a minute and think about what he just said. I want you to know that my circumstances. Now they knew what his circumstances were. Do you remember what they were? He was in a dungeon. Chained up to a Roman guard. All of his freedom to travel had been taken away. I mean it was like Paul's 2020 here. He's not able to go anywhere. Not able to influence people. Not able to do all that he hoped to do. And yet he says, I want you to know that my circumstances have worked out to actually further the gospel, the greater progress of the gospel. That is not what I would have written if this was me. I would have written you all and said, I'm in prison. It's awful. It's terrible. I can't do anything that I used to do. And the gospel of God is not progressing anymore. And Paul says, no, actually, it's the other way around. Now, let me say this a different way. I know that you as a church and you as an individual Christian and your families, you want the gospel to progress, don't you? You want it to be furthered. 
You want the progress of the gospel to continue. But if I was to ask you, what's the greatest threat to the progress of the gospel? What do you think people would say? Well, the greatest threat to the progress of the gospel is government opposition. Is the different things that are being taught to our children these days. Uh, What we would probably begin to say are are lists of circumstantial things because of the time in which we live. And we would talk about how those circumstances are the greatest threat to the progress of the gospel in our nation. Or somebody might say, well, in my own personal life, my circumstances are limiting me from doing any good. I'm getting older. I can't do what I used to do. Uh, Many of my freedoms are being taken away. But again, what we would say the greatest threat is are a lot of circumstantial things. But here Paul says, even amidst difficult circumstances, his circumstances had turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. How were they not a threat to Paul? Go to the end of the book now, look at chapter 4. I'm going to reread what we read a minute ago, but let's start in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, in both texts that we read, back in chapter 1, Paul brings up his circumstances. And here, he brings up his circumstances again. But notice what he says if you put the two things together. The first thing he says is, my circumstances have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Wait, is that because it made it easier for you to preach the gospel? No. What's the difference? And we get here to this text and he says, I have learned a secret. That being content in any and every circumstance is what makes the gospel progress. Do you believe that? Again, think about people you know. You ever known somebody that has a heart attack or uh, some sort of health issue? And they get wheeled into the hospital and they're laying there on a gurney and nurses and doctors come in and work on them. And by the time they're done in the hospital, they've got like Bible studies lined up. You ever known that guy or that woman? How do they do that? Like, how do they, when their outer man is decaying, renew their inner person so much that they just keep furthering the gospel and teaching what they should and influencing the lives around them and not being somebody who lays on a gurney and says, my life is miserable. I hate what's going on. This is so terrible. But they find the joy of the Lord. Because they developed the mindsets that Paul taught in this book. So I'm going to say this over and over again. I believe with all my heart that in every generation that Christians live, 
the key to the furtherance of the gospel has literally nothing to do with our circumstances. It has everything to do with our contentment in our circumstances. Go back to chapter one. Let's look at this a little bit closer. You know, in some ways, the book or the letter to the Philippians could be regarded as the book of bad news. Again, Paul's in prison. He's going to mention after verse 12, look here at verse 12 uh, or verse 13, right after that thing we read. He says, so that my imprisonment in the gospel, the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the Lord, uh, the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice. Now, I don't know how to make this personal for this church, uh, but I assume you guys appreciate Brent, uh, I think. Let's say that um, because of Brent and what he's done here in this community and they start finding out that, you know, you, y'all were meeting last year and all that and you weren't supposed to. Uh, they come and arrest him. They drag him to prison. Chain him up behind the bars. And he doesn't get to preach. Um, and then, when he's behind bars, there's some people that begin to try to ruin Brent's reputation. And so they start preaching things, but trying to make things worse for Brent there in prison, trying to kind of take over his role and like find their way into some position of authority and. It could really be troubling to Brent, but you, because you love him. You see, what Paul does in this text is he talks about his chains. He talks about his critics. And then in a few verses from now, he talks about his crisis. That he doesn't know whether to live or die or what to choose. It's all very difficult for him. He's hard-pressed between two decisions. Imagine Brent being in that situation. I don't know if I should live. I don't know if I should die. Would you expect him to fire off a letter and say, guys, this is good news. Uh, You know, one of the things I really like about this, he says, because he's in prison, other Christians found courage to speak the word of God, which seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? I mean, if people are getting arrested for preaching, why would people speak up for preaching? Because we humans were wired this way. We see the kind of courage that goes ahead and suffers for it. And we reach down deep inside and realize we should be doing more. And if that's what it took to get Christians to talk about Christ, we should lock up all the preachers, I think. (laughs) But he also understood something else. When he talks about his critics, he doesn't mind that they're preaching the gospel. In fact, what he rejoices in is that fact. Paul knew something that we need to learn. The power of the gospel is not in the person who preaches it or even their motives for preaching it. The power of the gospel is in the gospel. And so he finds all these ways 
to Pollyanna his way through this difficult situation. There's always something good to find. Now, what's going on here? How how does Paul find contentment in all of these things that would have ruined most of us? Skip down to verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27, Paul wrote this, Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now tonight in my sermon, I'm going to come back to this text and show you what's after it. So I'm not going to do that here. But I want you to think about this phrase in verse 27. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does gospel mean again? Good news. All right. Now there's conduct that's worthy of good news in your life. That means there's conduct unworthy of good news. Now, I'll I'll tell you what I think the emphasis is on in this verse when he says, only conduct yourself in a manner worthy. What Paul is trying to get at is he's just spent 26 verses showing us how he conducted himself worthy of the good news. Now, this book could be understood as a book of bad news. Epaphroditus in the next chapter almost died because he was sick. There's all kinds of things that are troubling this church in Philippi. So what does Paul do? He keeps reminding them of the gospel. You know, the gospel takes place nine times in this book. That word, good news. Six of them are in the first chapter. Why does Paul keep doing that? Verse five, uh, with in view of your participation in the gospel. Verse uh, seven, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, verse 12, uh, the greater progress of the gospel, verse 16, for the defense of the gospel, verse 27. Why would Paul keep bringing up in his circumstance the good news, the good news, the good news? Do you know why? Because as bad as things get out there, or in this body, or in your family, or in your church, no matter what amount of bad news you hear about the world that we live in, it will not exterminate the good news. Think about that. If the good news of Christ is real, what bad news is going to take it away? Imprisonment? Sword? Peril? Nakedness? Like what is there possibly in this world that can take away the truth of the good news in our life? But I want to be honest with you. I've struggled lately. I have struggled to have a sense of the good news that outweighs the sense of the bad news. And because of that, in my own personal life, I have not been furthering the gospel like I should. I'm just being honest with you. And I wonder if that's true for anybody else or for churches. Because contentment in our circumstances and and holding on to this idea of the good news is what will make us successful at furthering the gospel of Christ. Go to chapter two. Let me show you how he says it here. Chapter two. I'm going to start reading about verse 12. After he speaks of Jesus coming here to earth, having left heaven, 
uh, becoming a servant and God glorifying him and exalting him. Listen to what he says in verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence uh, only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, what does this text mean? Uh, this is a verse. This, um, this is a verse that gets brought up a lot when people start talking about like, are we saved by grace and faith or by works? And inevitably, somebody brings up, well, you know that verse says that you work out your salvation. Therefore, works are a part of salvation. I get why we do that. It's not what he means here. Um, another way this verse gets brought up. Somebody's doing something weird in their life, believe in something weird, and you go to them and you're like, why are you doing that weird thing or believing that weird thing? And they're like, listen, I'm working out my salvation. You're working out your salvation. Remember that verse? We all work out our own salvation. You leave me alone. I get why they do that, but that's not what this means. By the way, when he says your, he's not being specific to one person. That's a, that's a, that's a collective word. You Christians, you, all of you work out your salvation. What is he talking about? Now I I understand what I'm about to say is not typically the way this verse is understood, but I'll try to make my case. I don't want to add to it, but look at the verse 12 again. And I want you to think of it like this. When he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, what I believe he's getting at is he's getting at the idea of working out the purpose of your salvation with fear and trembling. Not you're going to do enough work that someday God's going to hand you salvation because you worked it out. But because God saved you, you need to work out the purpose of that salvation in, in your life. Why? Because God's at work in you. God saved you for a purpose. And, and when he saved us for a purpose, he wanted us to work out in fear and trembling the will and his good pleasure in our life. Well, what are we talking about? Look at the next verse. See, verse 14 says this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. All right, what's this paragraph really about? And how does it fit with what he just said in verses 12 and 13 about working out your salvation? Well, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. See that language? Do you remember in the Old Testament, anybody or group of somebodies? Who spent their time grumbling and disputing. Do you remember who that was? It was the children of Israel. Where were they? They're in the wilderness. It's miserable there. It's hot. 
It was uh, long. It's difficult. It didn't make a lot of sense to them. So they began to murmur and complain and grumble there in Numbers 16 and 17. You think Paul has that in his mind here? That, you know, the people of God who once had been saved from the land of Egypt, they didn't work out their salvation there. He brought them out. But you know what they were doing on their journey to the promised land is they were working out the purpose of their salvation, hopefully with fear and trembling, because God was at work in them both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He wanted something to happen with them. Do you know what he wanted them to be? Look again at verse 14 or verse 15. See verse 15 where it says, You will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Now, if you have a footnote for that verse, do you know where that language comes from in the Old Testament? This crooked and perverse generation being lights among those that might be crooked and perverse. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 32, the Song of Moses. You see, after they got through the wilderness experience where they grumbled and complained, Moses stood up in Deuteronomy 32 and he said something like this. Hey, heavens and earth, I want the whole universe to pay attention to what I'm about to say. These people were supposed to be the children of God. These people were supposed to be the lights of the world, the luminaries that illuminated the darkness. That held, look at verse, if you're here, verse 16, that held fast the word of life. But you know what they did instead? They grumbled. And they complained. They didn't work out the purpose of their salvation with fear and trembling. It was God who was at work in them both to will and to do for his good pleasure. But you know what they did when they looked at their circumstance? They begin to complain about everything. The economy. They couldn't get the things they wanted to eat every day. They didn't even like their leaders. But Christians never complain about any of those things, right? Just pay attention for a minute. Because the world is paying attention. You know what we talk about the most these days? Is how miserable our circumstances are in this world. It is. We don't like our leaders. We don't like our economy. We don't like what's happening. So we grumble. And then we get into fights with each other. And we dispute. And when that happens. Those lights of the world that hold fast the word of life to people. Become no longer credible. Why would anybody want what we have if we're not genuinely joyful? If we're not genuinely believing in the truth of the gospel? How would the gospel ever be furthered in the lives of people who are completely discontented by their circumstance? Everything that Paul says in this letter and personifies for us in his own life, he keeps telling the Philippians, It doesn't matter what's going on out there or what's going on in your own personal life. 
What really matters is whether you believe in the good news and your mind is set on the joy of the Lord and without grumbling or disputing, you continue to do that work. There's more to say about that, but I'm out of time. And this week I'll have a lot more to say like that. But how do we influence the people around us? The gospel's got to be real. Contentment has to become something that we've learned. The strength, the joy of the Lord, the secret of being able to do all things through Christ who strengthens us. If we ever want the gospel to progress, those are the things that have to become true for us. Thanks for your attention this morning. If there's somebody who's been overwhelmed by the bad news in the world, in your life, by your circumstances. I want you to hear the gospel preached through this message today. The good news of Jesus in your life can absolutely overcome and deliver you from all of that bad news. Your sin, your weakness, whatever it is that you feel like is happening in your life. Life can have new meaning, new purpose. Forgiveness is real in Christ. A future is there. And in a moment of living for him is yours. If you'll just come to him and let him have your life. If you haven't done that, we invite you to do it. If you need our prayers, let us know how while we stand and sing this song together.